This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Gay people were viewed as a problem, really, for most journalists, I think. They were used to dealing with them from the police beat. And so that a colleague would be a gay, openly gay person, I think, was a challenge. This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. Welcome to a bonus episode of Not Your Century. Today's main episode is a little longer and more ambitious than the usual daily fare. It's about Randy Schiltz, who came to the San Francisco Chronicle in 1981 and soon became the leading chronicler of the AIDS pandemic. He published the best-selling book And the Band Played On in 1987. It was on May 13, 1982, that the Chronicle published his first story about AIDS, which wasn't yet called that. It was a roundup of the strange diseases that were plaguing gay men. Part of this story is that the piece ran not on page one. This is a health crisis where 19 people in the Bay Area were already dead. It ran on page six. Mainstream media just was not interested in covering gay people. As fellow reporter Susan Sward says in the main episode, Schiltz pushed the story of AIDS from page 6 to page 1. There's a new biography of Randy Schiltz. It's called The Journalist of Castro Street. That's a play on the title of his first book, a bio of Harvey Milk called The Mayor of Castro Street. The author is Andrew E. Stoner, and he's my guest. He's an academic and assistant professor of communication studies at Sacramento State University, and this book started life as his Ph.D. thesis. But don't let that scare you off. He started out as a newspaper reporter, so he's an engaging writer. And he says the first thing the publisher did to his manuscript was strip out all the academic theories. It's a good read. Andrew Stoner, join me in the Chronicle Podcast Studio. Andrew Stoner, welcome to Not Your Century. Thank you. Nice to be here. You are the author of The Journalist of Castro Street, The Life of Randy Schultz. Tell me about Randy Schultz. Uh, I think most people know him as the author of And the Band Played On and as the chronicler of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. Back up a little bit. I don't want to go too deeply into this, but uh, his childhood, uh, how was what happened to him in his childhood significant to who he became? Well, he's a native of Aurora, Illinois. He grew up there. He was actually born in Iowa, but he was one of five brothers uh, that cover a 25-year stretch, and their family um, had the typical struggles, I think, of that era. Um, his mother, in particular, Randy writes a lot about, struggled with alcoholism and some violent reactions at times to trying to corral five boys, mostly on her own. Um, Randy wrote about that in an essay about uh, adult survivors of child abuse, um, and in my research, uh, his older brother, seemed to confirm the uh, account that Randy gave. His younger brother thought Randy perhaps overstated it. But again, there was a 25-year span between the oldest brother and the youngest. So life changes a lot in those years, and the marriage solidified, and the family moved to Michigan after Randy moved out to Oregon. And so I think uh, Randy's experiences indicate uh, 
pushed him toward really achieving, toward really pleasing. He had perfect attendance through, all through junior high school and high school. And a lot of his teachers thought what a dedicated student he must be. But he really was trying to escape home. Going to school meant another day away from his mother and away from the kind of uh, difficult environment that could be sometimes. So he, he went to school every day he could. And, and I think that work ethic really carried through to try to please people. And then uh, you mentioned he goes to Oregon. He went to Portland Community College and then the University of Oregon. Why there, a kid from uh, Illinois? Well, he wrote in his diary that his girlfriend at the time back in Illinois had said she heard about uh, communes and uh, bisexual communes in particular. It seemed to pique his interest. And so he was going to go to Oregon and kind of explore being a hippie, and uh, which was a good place to go in 1969, 1970. That's an appropriate place to try it. Um, he eventually um, got serious about college and wasn't admitted to the University of Oregon as an English major originally. And he uh, he began like he he sort of discovered for himself that he was gay or admitted to himself that he was gay during his college years. Uh, kind of began his public life as an activist, and then that transitioned to journalism. Uh, walk me through that. Well, he ran for student body president at the University of Oregon under a theme of come out for Schiltz and uh, was not successful, but did run for another position where he was chair of a board that controlled several million dollars in student activity fees and steered money toward gay student groups and other activities that were of, uh, of his interest. And he was very active in the Eugene Gay People's Alliance when he lived there. Um, I think that if you read what he wrote at the time, he became frustrated by the ability of politics to kind of change things. And he's he's often talking about that in his diary and other places about if people just understood gay people a little bit more, that they'd be more accepting, that if the problem was that they had misinformation or no information. And so he saw politics and I think eventually journalism as a way to change how people felt. He gets into journalism. He makes his way to the Bay Area working for The Advocate. Uh, tell me about that. He had, a, he had kind of a, it seems like, wow, I'm home now, but he had a rough time there. He did, and, and it wasn't really what he wanted. He wanted to be in mainstream media, and one of his professors at Oregon told me that they had a lot of doubts about his ability to land a regular newspaper job because he was so open in not only his dress but his demeanor but also what he talked about. So he took the job at The Advocate, and he battled it a lot with David Goodstein, who was the owner of The Advocate at that time, and who had moved the newspaper San Mateo to kind of disconnect it from the two gay epicenters of San Francisco and Los Angeles. And I think he uh, bucked heads with the leadership there because of the more commercial aspect of their writing, but also um, the political nature of the gay rights movement at that time was still figuring itself out between... um, gay liberation people and sexual liberation people. And I think that Schultz got caught in the middle of a lot of that politics. Yeah, and that became a bigger issue uh, as the AIDS crisis developed. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But first, he, uh, let's, get to, let's bring him here to the San Francisco Chronicle. He worked at KQED for a while on their news show and then comes to the Chronicle, I think, in 1981. Um, I, I want to go. I want you to put me back in that era. I find uh, I was alive. I was a grown up in that era, or I was in college. Um, I find that with eras before my time that I didn't live through, it's really hard to connect with what it felt like, what it, what the atmosphere like. And uh, I noticed talking to people who weren't around in the eighties, it's really hard to convey what something like the attitude toward gays was. So, give me the context of 
what it means in 1981 for this guy who is out as gay and, as you said, fairly very open about it, to get a job at a major metropolitan newspaper, something that's routine now and has been routine for a long time. What did that mean in 1981 and what was the reaction to it? Well, I think it's, it's very significant. It's a big step on the, the part of any newspaper, but particularly the San Francisco Chronicle deserves credit for that. I can only relate it into my own experience. I entered a newsroom, first started as a reporter back in the mid-early 80s, 84, just a few years after, Randy. And I could say that would have been my uh, – the fact that I'm gay would have been my darkest or my best-kept secret because there was no, – it was a very much a, a boys' club. And even the women that were there played along with the boys' club attitude, a very fraternal sort of atmosphere, a lot of derogatory comments at times being made about gay people. Gay people were viewed as a problem really for most journalists, I think. They were used to dealing with them from the police beat in terms of vice raids or other kind of prostitution or other kinds of public sex issues um, – or even child molest sort of things that it was in the mind of a lot of people. So that a colleague would be a gay, openly gay person, I think, was a challenge. And and Susan Sward, one of Randy's colleagues at that time, told me that even you know Randy wore brightly colored suspenders and had a big laugh, and could be a little over enthusiastic about his stories. Would often cause people to pause and and try to take a, a full measure of him. But I, I want to note that he said in his own notes that he he kept a tablet a little pocket tablet to write down moments when he felt he had been poorly treated. I'm not sure what he was planning to do with that information, but he never ended up taking down any information. He felt that he was accepted eventually. And I think that's probably the result of the fact that there's just nobody going to work harder than Randy. He's an excellent writer. He was he would prove his bona fides every day as a reporter. He was hired. He was hired as a metro reporter, but was sort of to cover the gay uh, community. He's writing about the gay culture. He's writing about some political issues, some uh, neighborhood issues around the Castro, and then all of a sudden he uh, writes this kind of big piece. Uh, I think the headline is something like "Strange, uh, Strange New Disease Plaguing Gay Men," and it's a roundup of this, this uh, suite of diseases that are plaguing gay men, in mostly in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, the death toll at that point was 19 in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. And this story is on page six. So uh, there's kind of a lot to unpack there. Uh, here's the first story of what became the, the uh, story of this guy's life, this guy being the main chronicler of this huge tragedy. Um, why was it on page six? And... <laughs> And um, what happens to Randy Schultz once he gets on this story? Yeah, I'm sure Randy would have thought it was a front-page story, but um, he had some convincing still to do. I think the Chronicle slowly realized the gay community was a part of the beat, was a part of their community that could not be uh, uncovered. And Randy's enterprise certainly would have proven that, too. I'm sure he came in, uh, people described to me that he had a quiver full of new story ideas every day. Um, and he had many fine contacts, both in the Castro District, but also in the health department for San Francisco County and also uh, with the, what was left of Harvey Milk's organization. So I think he was tapped in. I think that uh, because you have to remember this is, a, you know this and everybody else does too, this was a disease without a name even. We just know that people are presenting with exotic problems that Eventually, it's figured out, well, it's a result of a compromised immune system, but what's causing that? What's behind that? And so, you know, the first 
names of this were gay cancer or gay-related immune deficiency, GRID, um, lots of um, struggle trying to figure out exactly what we have on our hands. And so for Schiltz to dive into that and all that uncertainty and all that unknown um, is either an act of bravery or foolishness because a lot of the stories could could um, ultimately be wrong or could be ultimately be washed over or, or t- overtaken by succeeding events. But I, I just don't think he was afraid of that at all. I think he saw it as important. He knew what was happening in the community. He was beginning to experience it from a very personal level, I think. And uh, uh, I don't think he had any choice but to go ahead and dive in and take the Chronicle with him as much as he could. And the editors at the Chronicle that I talked to said that it was a, it was a difficult pull because to discuss AIDS, what we ultimately became AIDS, was to discuss sexual transmission of disease between gay men, not a topic normally on the pages of any newspaper at that time. So um, it, it took a lot of time and effort, and I, I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear those editor-reporter discussions that undoubtedly happened where there was um, surely battles fought for every inch that he got. Yeah, and that's another um, take me back there to help me understand if I wasn't there. Uh, the first, I don't know how many years of the AIDS uh, crisis, just even talk, there, just the level of fear that was around even talking about AIDS. Um, my, I don't know if I have this right, but my impression is a lot of the uh, medical privacy laws that are on the books now are a result of the AIDS crisis because of you know how horrible it would be if anybody knew that you had AIDS. You could lose your job for it and, and all that stuff. So there was that level of fear around this disease then too, right? There was. And if you think even about the sources that Randy was able to contact, like Selma Dritz at the county health department had a chalkboard with all the cases that she had discovered uh, plotted out on a chalkboard in her office. That'd be something that'd be a major privacy violation now. Um, but it was the way, it was her way of tracking her at form of epidemiology in the chalkboard era. I think that uh, the people that were affected by AIDS were also um, probably some of the least most powerful, least uh, politically connected people in the world. You're talking about gay men, sex workers, Haitian immigrants, and IV or intravenous drug users. I think that collective group is one that a lot of people would probably come back with, they deserve what they get sort of approach. And so if you'd start talking about people who are suffering ill effects of some of their activities, there'd be a whole bunch of, of, of the community that yawn and say, so what? And that's um, an attitude that's offensive to hear. And I, I, I cringe saying it, but I think it, it reflects reality. There's a, a fear and loathing of certain people in this era that's greater than we even know now. And um, it was viewed as perfectly normal to blame the victim. Yeah, uh, so what is actually on the benign end of the scale, really? There was also, like you said, they deserve it and and, uh, good riddance to them. Yeah, or even quarantine people, Yeah, that sort of thing. And then, uh, but also, there was, uh, Randy Schultz had some enemies, uh, quite a few enemies, in the gay community. Uh, There was a lot of controversy around uh, his attitude Toward there was a lot of controversy around bathhouses, and there was a lot of controversy around the side that he took in the bathhouse controversy. Explain what the bathhouse controversy is and why his uh, view of it was controversial. I think this really comes to the the head in 1984. In the summer of 1984 was particularly uh, problematic for everyone. The city of San Francisco was preparing for the Democratic National Convention to come to town, and 
Mayor Feinstein at that time was interested in uh, cleaning up the city to the degree that they could to make a favorable impression upon people from all across the nation coming here. Um, Randy had worked in a, a bathhouse during college and also oftentimes went to bathhouses. So he knew very much what was what happened in a bathhouse in terms of um, anonymous sex or very no-strings-attached sort of uh, sexual encounters with people. Um, and I think that his decision or his attitude that this was possibly a contributing factor to why we were seeing these problems, these new diseases being presented um, was something he came to quicker than other people did. I mean, it, he also had written a lot in the older in the previous days at the Advocate about hepatitis and other S- STDs that um, gay people were experiencing in large numbers. And so I think this was an evolution of his thinking in terms of um, what the gay liberation movement meant. For many people, it meant free sexual expression. And that is a big part of it because you're talking about a generation of people who whose sexual expression would cause them to be arrested or, or imprisoned or even killed or, or fired or, you know, basically destroyed. When you have people finally being able to express themselves sexually, I think you, you can begin to understand why there's a reluctance to, for anybody to put the brakes on that, to say, don't hold me back. I've just gained freedoms. I've just understood who I am. I've begun to express my life like normal people do instead of in the shadows of life. And I'm sure that pulling back the, the, the curtain that Randy was doing in, in the bathhouse and kind of exposing the activity that was going on there was hard for people to take because it meant that some of that liberation was going to be perhaps curtailed or changed in important ways. One of the famous things in uh, And the Band Played On is uh, Patient Zero, the, the first AIDS patient. Um, that's something that um, maybe he didn't get right. Tell me about that. Yeah, this remains the most uh, controversial aspect of Schiltz's work, it's, it, and any review now would reveal that he got it wrong, that the um, read of the cluster study done on some initial patients who were, were demonstrating sim- symptoms of immunodeficiency virus were um, incorrectly identified. This patient zero actually was a patient O for outside Los Angeles. Um, the book that Randy wrote, Controversy, the controversy of it now is that he he named Gaetan Dugas as the young man who uh, may have been responsible. And it is true that if you look at one cluster study, Dugas is at the center of that and does have impact on several men in that circle. But University of Arizona researchers and others have since isolated the type of virus that Dugas was carrying that was collected by the CDC at the time, and it was not among the most prolific uh, stereotypes available, and I think that Schultz got this wrong, and I think there's a lot of hurt feelings around the publicity of Patient Zero in order to sell the Schultz book that some of the people working with Randy uh, undertook, and that as a result, he Randy Schultz dies in 1994 and doesn't get a chance to revisit this issue, and I'm certain he would. He would want it right, and he would want it to be set. He would want to resolve the issue, and that's where my book is trying to at least acknowledge that he didn't have that opportunity. And he would have certainly took it, I'm sure, as a good journalist and good author, that he would have said, we have to correct this. We have to set the record straight. And maybe even um, apologize for the error, which as a result, you know, you have people who hold Randy in high esteem and you have other people who really 
just don't care for him at all. And I've experienced that in, in researching this book. And you, you think that he, he just got it wrong. He made a mistake. It wasn't uh, creating a composite character for easier understanding and selling. Well, I've heard that suggested. I, I think that from talking to William Darrow, the author of The Cluster Study, and from his interactions with Randy, I think he thinks that Randy had it wrong, that he interpreted it wrong, and that this patient zero as a storytelling element did become very popular, very strong, and hard to resist. I don't think that Randy uh, maliciously went out and tried to uh, lie or, or mislead people. I think that patient zero does help us understand the story, but I think that um, to say that that person's the origin of HIV in North America is is rather absurd on its face at this point, we know. And so I think that um, I, I choose to believe, from what my research showed, that he was earnestly uh, believing that this outside case was, or this zero case, was the center of a cluster that ultimately infected a lot of people. Randy Schultz was HIV positive and knew it for a long time before he revealed that. Uh, when did he know, and um, who did he tell? My book takes a lot of effort. I put a lot of effort into trying to answer that question. Um, he publicly would state that he learned on the day he turned in the manuscript for Band, and then his doctor went ahead and told him what his status was, which was positive. Um, I, I have found contradictions of that, and I have a hard time squaring that with the fact that I don't think a physician would delay treatment or hold off on dealing with a patient they know are HIV positive just because the patient doesn't want to know for a period of time. So I don't know how much um, veracity we can put in that. I think Randy had experienced being out very early. He experienced all the pain of that, and I'm sure that was in his mind. And AIDS was very much uh, a repeat performance, but this time with uh, scorn and, and hatred and fear of proportion I don't think anybody could ever understand. And so uh, he, he said after he disclosed his HIV status that he didn't want that to be the story. He wanted his information to be the story. He didn't want to be a part of the story. And that's a typical journalist position, I think, but I also think uh, some examination of what he said and when he said it reveals that he wasn't as forthcoming as he could have been. And that said, though, there's no requirement that he was, had to be. There's no, um, he got asked that question a lot, and um, there was no law or no requirement that he tell people what his own status was. If uh, Randy Schultz had never come along, um, certainly the AIDS crisis eventually would have been covered, and uh, the Chronicle would have written about it and other newspapers, and somebody would have written the book that's the definitive book. But uh, try to imagine Randy Schultz hadn't happened. Um, how would the AIDS crisis have played out differently or would it? Oh, I think in terms of it would have played out slower. I think the response uh, in terms of, introduction of uh, introduction of new drugs, even this idea of pushing for what is causing these diseases, this isolation of the human immunodeficiency virus, this whole push would have happened much slower. I think public policy issues for safe sex education, for example, would have been much slower. Because again, we're talking about a group of people that didn't have power. The book is The Journalist of Castro Street, The Life of Randy Schultz. The author is Andrew E. Stoner. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Andrew E. Stoner's biography of Randy Schultz is called The Journalist of Castro Street, The Life of Randy Schultz. It's available for pre-order now and will be released on May 30th. Not Your Century is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. 
Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this show, we'd love it if you'd give it a rating and a review. For great journalism today, consider subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle, which you can do in both paper and digital form by going to sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Historical research by Libby Coleman. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.